Hello, this is Dr. Ilana Romel, and today we'll be mapping preparing for vaccinations on the 15-minute matrix. Welcome to the 15-Minute Matrix. I'm Andrea Nakayama, functional medicine nutritionist and your host. This is the podcast that brings you bite-sized insights and lessons on the clinical relevance of the functional nutrition matrix, the most important tool in functional medicine and functional nutrition. The matrix not only reminds us to stop and assess, but it suggests the relevance of three very important factors in our care, recommendations, and outcomes. Everything is connected, we are all unique, and all things matter. Be sure to head over to this episode's show notes at 15minutematrix.com if you'd like to see today's topic mapped on a downloadable matrix to remind you of these critical aspects of care. Today on the 15 Minute Matrix, I'll be speaking with Dr. Alana Rumel. Dr. Alana Rumel is a pediatric naturopathic doctor and creator of Med School for Moms, an online program where she teaches moms how to safely be a doctor mom. Her guidebooks and programs help moms feel calm, competent, and confident when their child gets sick and ultimately helps moms feel empowered with her family's healthcare decisions. Dr. Alana is also a co-host of the popular Dr. Mom podcast, nearing 1 million downloads, and the founder of Nourish Medical Center in San Diego, California. Before we get started, I want to state that we at the Functional Nutrition Alliance are not advocating for or against vaccinations. It's a much more complex topic than we can explore on this podcast, and one that comes down to a multiplicity of factors. However, and I think you'll appreciate this about Dr. Alana, for those making the choice to vaccinate, for whatever reasons, there are best practices and considerations we can employ to support our clients and patients and children have successful outcomes. That's what we'll be discussing in this episode, so let's get started. Dr. Alana, welcome to the 15-Minute Matrix. So nice to be here. Thank you for inviting me. You are such a strong stand and advocate for parent empowerment, and I love that. One of the big challenges that you found parents face is, of course, regarding vaccinations. And I know the conversation about two or not to vaccinate is a huge one. And today I want to make sure that we don't focus there, but instead consider how best to, if deciding to. And I'm wondering if you could start us off by helping us think into the difference between best practices in this arena. Great. So yes, I take a very neutral stance. As practitioners, we all know we don't come to patient care with our own judgment. I think it's so important that difficult decisions like these are Mm. very, very, you know, it's just important to have the parents feel empowered with their choice. And it's up to us to give them as much education and information so they can come up with their their plan. So that's how I teach with my patients and also with my uh, vaccine course that I also use for education. Um, So to answer your question, I think it's very important that 
we understand both the risks and the benefits mm. for each individual vaccine. And so that's very complex and very um I would say oftentimes overwhelming to parents. And so I think it's just important that we take each individual child, we assess his or her own risk factors for each individual vaccine. And then after we go through all of that information, then we can make a decision. Do we vaccinate? Do we not vaccinate? And whichever route the the parent decides to take, we still have a lot more supportive measures. If you choose not to vaccinate, it's incredibly important as practitioners that we have to educate the risks to that as well. And then if we choose to vaccinate, then, well, what's the optimal plan that a parent can take so that we know that the child could detoxify optimally and potentially decrease any adverse reactions and, and to best support? So that's that's my goal. Yeah, I really love that. And I love that you take that neutral perspective because we can't make the decisions. And we, as practitioners, I believe, shouldn't be putting our foot down about our own belief systems because it is, as you said, a risk benefit or a risk reward situation both ways. I mean, both ways we have to be thinking about that. So when we think about risks, let's look quickly because it's the, I think, the shorter arena of the risk of exposure. And then let's focus a little bit more on the risk of adverse reactions and what we might consider in any one child. So first, risk of exposure. What are we thinking about there? Studies have shown that perhaps children that are exposed to secondhand smoke, as an mm. example, are at higher risk of contracting something like meningitis from Hib or potentially pneumococcal, and that's the vaccine is PCV. So children who are growing up in environments like this a recommendation would be that we would want to consider those vaccines much, much stronger than some of the others simply because of their environment. Mm. The lung is more affected through oxidative damage, and so that those type of infections come specifically from respiratory droplets, just as an example, have more of a predisposition to infecting those type of children in that environment. So that's just one example of an environmental exposure risk. Another risk factor is non-breastfed children. So mm -hmm. breastfed babies are at less risk of developing certain illnesses, whereas a non-breastfed child has more of an increase in developing some of these illnesses. Another one is ethnicity. So Native Americans, as an example, and African Americans tend to have an increased risk of exposure to some of these diseases. So again, we're looking at environmental, ethnic, and also potentially dietary type of uh, risk factors that will help us determine if someone is at increased risk. One other thing that is more so environmental is uh, daycare. Mm. So I always talk to um, parents about this. Everyone's situation is very unique. If a child has to go to daycare for various circumstances as early as, let's say, six weeks of age, their exposure is much greater than a child who is at home for the first three years, let's say, of their life. So again, this is so individualized, and this is why a really thorough intake is so important to get. Yeah, I really just appreciate and want to underscore that because the empowerment comes from slowing down the process of the decision making so that we're not in the stress, the parental stress of the yes or the no, but instead thinking through these lenses and making the appropriate decisions to lead to the lowest risk. 
So when we think about each and individual child, there were certain things you talked about, like ethnicity. What other factors might be contributing to our decision-making regarding a, a schedule for vaccination or even how to support a child getting vaccine? I didn't really answer your question about assessing adverse reactions because another thing that goes along with what I usually propose as a pre and a post detox plan is assessing a child's nutrient status. Mm -hmm. So we have um, some evidence that low vitamin D levels will also increase someone's risk for adverse reactions. This could be why potentially the African-American population has right. an increased rate since we see a lot more since with the dark skin, we see a lot uh, lower rates of vitamin D. And then there, there could be some other reasons as well. Another theory is that low levels of glutathione also potentiate adverse reactions. And there's a great study from 2008 studying MMR and the use of Tylenol mm. can show some uh, a correlation between adverse reactions with a vaccine. And we know Tylenol specifically creates a metabolite called napki. Napki is incredibly toxic to the body. And so it rapidly depletes glutathione in the body. And so if you can imagine a child is getting an injection of a vaccine that naturally does have toxins. Toxins are not included in a vaccine to, of course, harm the child. That is not the purpose. It's an adjuvant, and an adjuvant is helping to potentiate the effectiveness of the vaccine. And so they they tested without the toxin. It actually doesn't work as well. So hmm. with the toxin, whether it's aluminum or whatnot, it actually does potentiate and make it more effective. So these children are being exposed to toxins with every injection. And so if you can imagine if a child is given Tylenol either before or after a vaccine, and the body is depleted with glutathione, which as practitioners likely know, are endogenous antioxidant. It's right. our master detoxifier. Now we are just, um, we are creating a situation where toxins are now not able to detoxify as quickly. And now they're circulating for a longer period of time. And you go ahead and you couple that with a a genetically sensitive individual, right. and then that can create definite adverse reactions. So I always teach my patients and all my students in my programs how to best avoid Tylenol. And it's not just about avoiding Tylenol before or after vaccines. Tylenol has been linked to increased rates of eczema as well with especially overuse. And overuse could be even as high as one time per month could be considered a high user. So it's just a very important thing. What I love to do is empower parents to understand their both conventional tools and natural therapies so that they can reduce the need for something like Tylenol, because I think that this will help set them up for uh, decreasing adverse reactions from not only vaccines, but just giving them optimal health to grow into really healthy individuals. Yeah, because that's what we're all afraid of with the vaccines. It's those adverse reactions. It's not that we don't want to protect our children against these rare diseases that could be deadly. It's that we're nervous about what could happen. So I love that you're talking about how we set them up for optimal results and success. What about things like gut hyperpermeability and other issues that we see on the rise or other immune issues that are activated with so many children these days? Are you seeing correlations between those and potentially adverse reactions from vaccines? Well, I can't say that. Um, I haven't done, I would say, enough samples to say any type of correlation. What I will say, though, is when 
we assess for potential adverse reactions. I not only look at nutrient levels or glutathione levels or vitamin D, but I am looking at a family history mm. of autoimmune disorders. I'm looking at a family history of other type of immune reactions. So hypersensitivities like anaphylaxis or even as simple as allergies or eczema, just so I know what immune type of activity is happening in the family and what is also obviously happening in the child. Because with a vaccine, you are absolutely you know, triggering an immune response, right. everyone's immune system is going to react somewhat differently. Some will actually hyper respond, some will hypo respond, right? Under respond. And some of them could even be triggered into creating an autoimmune type of reaction because it actually goes haywire and doesn't know exactly what to do. What I'm very interested in is knowing what that susceptibility is based on family history so that those individuals are extra protective. I think a pre and post detox plan would be helpful for any individual. However, I don't think it's necessary for every individual because I think most of the time kids generally don't at least show negative reactions. I can't say that there's not something internally happening that we're not seeing symptomatically, but I would say that we definitely see more adverse reactions, whether that's even just a spike of fever or a rash or um, irritability, like these that are quote unquote common reactions, but are not dangerous. These are still reactions. And we definitely see them in more of these individuals that have these stronger family histories tied with some immune type of dysfunction. Yeah. So definitely an antecedent we'd want to be exploring there. And you've mentioned this phrase that I want us to kind of look at a little bit more pre and post vaccine detox plan. When you say that, I know you can't share all the specifics here because that would not be keeping in mind the truth of bioindividuality, but what does that actually mean for a child? I think we think of detox as something that could be more aggressive. What are you speaking about there? That's a great question. So when I, um, you know, I first started my practice with general wellness or general population, and then I really focus on peds and I realized, oh my goodness, I can't do real like liver cleanses right. you know, with my pediatric <laughs> patients. And how am I doing this? And it's also very important to know that, you know, these, especially infants, we're talking about two month olds, you right. know, four month olds, you know, getting these injections, they do not have a developed detox system. You yep. know, they're still, um, creating and maturing their liver and their kidneys and all of these great um, systems that adults have matured. So it's a very gentle plan that I've created. Um, what I use is I, I combine nutrients and I combine homeopathics that are very safe for this age range. I counsel mothers who are breastfeeding. They're the ones who are going to be taking the majority of the mm. nutrients so that it can go right through the breast milk. And as the child gets older, then we can start giving it direct to the child. So it's actually very much geared to the age. And it's also geared towards, again, the risk factors and the potential adverse reaction type of factors that the child has, because it's a long list of stuff. They don't always need to do everything, but there are some nutrients that I just think that are really important to have on board. So important. I'm wondering if you could speak a little bit more into schedule. And I know this is controversial. And I'm just going to say here, for those who know me, I have a 19-year-old son. He's at college. He was born at home in San Francisco, 
back in the day, and we got to go really slow and selectively with the vaccines, and we didn't have the pressures through his school-age years, through his grade school years, to vaccinate here in Oregon. So he actually got a lot of vaccines for the first time that he needed to go to college right before going to college. So I was able to pace things. I was also able to delay things until his immune system was a little bit more developed. That's not the case these days. So I'm wondering what timing and pacing have to do with some of this decision-making from your perspective. Well, as a clinician, I cannot go against actually CDC guidelines. I can really get in trouble for that. So I'm going to speak and say, I personally, from also I'm a mother as well, I want all parents to have the choice. Mm -hmm. To me, that's something I fight for. I fight for medical freedom. I mean, I'm a California resident and I was incredibly active in the legislation with, we just passed SB 276, which essentially doesn't allow for that medical freedom anymore. Here in California, physicians cannot write medical exemptions like we used to be able to, even if there is a significantly, you know, medically fragile child. So this is where I get very passionate about. And I do believe it should be the right of the parent. And at the end of the day, we're no longer given that right in certain states. And so this is a very sensitive subject. And so for me to even be able to answer this question almost seems like it's not fair because I would love to be able to guide more gentle type of schedules. And Mm -hmm. I would love to be able to share that. And I used to be able to share that a lot more. Now I'm taking the stance of if this is no longer a choice, what is the way we could feel most empowered? If we're going to be doing this, how can we set up a child to be as resilient as possible so that we could reduce any adverse reactions and we could just focus on the benefits that vaccines can give us? Because at the end of the day, I teach my patients and my students, there is risk in giving a vaccine, and there is risk in not giving a vaccine. There is risk in either choice, which is why this is such a complex and difficult decision, and I'm here to just help guide you on your decision-making process. So I hope that that answers your question in being fair to, you know, all the parents out there. One thing, though, to note, and what I do like to stress is the laws really are regulated around school entry Mm -hmm. and school entry is in the choice of the parents. So for some school entry can look like six weeks because of two full-time working parents. And that's their only option for childcare. For some others, it can look like starting at kindergarten. And so now we're talking a difference between a six week old or a five year old. And for some, they want to homeschool. And at this point, There's then no age. And so that's another very individual choice for a family to choose. And that's actually, it's not only just an emotional choice or even a medical choice. This is now coming a financial choice, a day-to-day scheduling. Uh, Can we hire a nanny or is one parent working or another? I mean, this is now very complex. Yes. And it's hard to have a parent know this when they first have a child. They don't know at age three if they're going to put their kid in school or not. They don't know at age two, if it's right or not. And what I like to stress is that we don't want to rush all of them. I find if parents don't plan with enough time, they want to put their kid in school and the school's asking for, let's say six different vaccines, but because of multiple dosing, we're now looking at maybe 14 or 16 injections and they want to start their kid in school next month. And so that's where I also like to help them be proactive and take sometimes a year, if not two, to help plan for this. 
Yeah, so brilliant. I mean, you really brought us all around the matrix and really helped us to see the physiological impacts that can occur and also be uh, predispose a child to potential adverse reactions, but also how their history can set them up for success or possibly that potential risk and where we can really bring some thinking to this. We will link to all your resources in the show notes and you have so much more that you can teach both moms and practitioners. But one of the things I wanted to ask you is to speak into, if you can, we may be at this point considering vaccines for COVID-19. Would the same considerations be true that you're bringing forward for those vaccinations once they are presented to us? So the hard part with that is we have so little knowledge about the novel COVID-19. Right. And I believe our exposure risk is very high considering we also don't know what the adverse reactions are. We have unknown information there. So when we look at a vaccine, we have to look at what's the exposure rate, what's the risk of getting the disease, and then also what's the risk and the, the worst possible scenario of an adverse reaction to that vaccine. Right. Um, so if we don't have the rates, the risk, it's very hard to assess that. When I teach about these other vaccines, we have a lot of information mm, and we have many, mm-hmm. many years with this. And so it's very hard for me to give this type of advice. My gut instinct is that we need just more time. Yeah. We need more time to see how this plays out. And I, I personally would not want children to be the first guinea pigs with this, especially because their risk factors of the complications are so low. Um, I think that it would be important to choose a different population to to see. And that I think is going to be a, a, a long process before I can really give you a good answer. Yeah, that was really well said. I think it is about the research we have and what we know about different vaccinations. And I really appreciate your very holistic and integrative perspective on the entire conversation. Thank you so much. Well, thank you. Thank you for the work you do. It's a pleasure to be here today. The 15-Minute Matrix is brought to you by me, Andrea Nakayama, and the Functional Nutrition Alliance. Check out the latest in functional nutrition at functionalnutritionlab.com forward slash blog. The 15-Minute Matrix team features music by Gilbert Nakayama with production support from Renee Hunt, Natalie Merrill, and Christine Shook, and sound mixing, editing, and producing by Rowan Bradley. Please feel free to get in touch with us. We'd love to hear your thoughts, your feedback, who you'd like to hear on the next podcast. You can email us at ask at 15minutematrix.com.